We're seeing healthcare startups springing up like mushrooms these days. Wearables, apps, AI and analytics, genomics, devices, diagnostics. Those startups cover a lot of ground. But one thing we're not seeing many of today are startup health insurance companies? Hello and welcome to DataPoint, the podcast about all the ways that data and analytics are driving innovation in healthcare today. I'm your host, Greg Matthews, and you heard that right. Since early 2019, Austin, Texas is home to a startup health insurance company. United, Blue Cross, Cigna, Aetna, Humana, meet Decent, a company that was designed to provide value-centric health insurance coverage to Austin's burgeoning community of freelance workers. According to a recent survey from Upwork, a staggering 35% of Americans freelanced in 2018, and the number of people freelancing is growing three times as fast as those starting jobs at companies, the traditional source of health insurance for most working Americans. My guest today on DataPoint is Molly Moore, a longtime healthcare executive, self-described formidable healthcare nerd, roller derby enthusiast, and the health plan lead for Decent, Austin's newest health insurance option for freelancers. Get ready for a fun ride as Molly and I tackle some of the sacred cows of paying for healthcare. And if you're a freelancer in Austin, be sure to check out Decent.com. Molly, thanks for being with us today on DataPoint. Yeah, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I was, uh, I've been excited about this conversation ever since we met at uh, Health Tech Austin uh, over the summer. You had come in to speak and uh, I think really made an impact uh, on the folks in the room because uh, at that point, I think a lot of people didn't necessarily know about Decent, but I'm really eager yeah. to dive into it with you. And was that the uh, conference where they drew the big cartoon of my head? <laughs> that was the one. Great. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of a fun little treat that you get uh, at Health Tech Austin. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself. We're going to dive into sure. Decent and what you're doing there, but you have a pretty interesting background and I'd love to give the listeners a little context here. Can you tell us how you came to be sitting where you're sitting? Yeah. Um, okay. So I am a total healthcare nerd. My whole professional career has been in healthcare. Started in 1996. So I've been in it for about 23 years and it keeps changing. So it keeps staying interesting. Um, I've worked on the provider side. I spent a decade at payers that included Aetna United and the Blue Cross Blue Shield up in the Pacific Northwest. I worked in venture capital. I did post-epic implementation revenue cycle consulting for hospitals. I have my own consulting business, uh, affectionately known as my side hustle. And I got my MBA from the University of Washington in 2012 and really sort of opened my eyes to uh, entrepreneurship and the sort of stoke that comes from having a really early stage business. And shortly thereafter, I went to work in venture capital, uh, doing business development. So taking uh, companies who we had invested in, essentially opening new doors to them and helping them sort of find their way in the, the mess of healthcare. Um, and then left that uh, to go work for a 20,000 life self-funded union. So a tapped Hartley trust uh, and bought mm -hmm. insurance. And then, um, which was extremely eye-opening. Um, I set up all the the performance metrics and 
designed all the plans and chose the payers and things like that. Um, and I really loved that. Uh, and I happened to talk with Nick Soman, uh, the CEO, thinking this was sort of a side hustle business. And he said, hey, we're going to raise some money. And I was like, sure you are. Call me when you have the money raised. <laughs> and he called me like less than a month later and was like, okay, we're ready to go. Yikes. Uh, and I was like, okay, let's do this. So here I am at Decent just um, about a year and a half later, and uh, we're live in Austin <laughs> and ready for wow. our first open enrollment, which starts on November 1st, and uh, we're, we're ready. We're pumped. We're excited. So I noticed as you're sketching in that background, you failed to mention roller derby. I Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one of the things that so, stood out to me when I met you. Tell me about roller derby quickly, <laughs> even though it's a little bit of a sidestep. Okay. Another thing that I love is roller skating. I started playing roller derby right before I got my MBA. I, um, so I worked during the day at my job and went to school at night, which meant I basically sat for like 12 plus hours a day. And so I yep. put on a little, little weight and I was like, what's a fun thing that I could do? Um, to get me excited about getting back in shape. And so I bought myself a pair of roller skates and um, the place where I purchased my roller skates, they were like, are you going to play roller derby? And I was like, ha ha, no. <laughs> uh, and then like two months later, I was like, all right, I'm going to play roller derby. Give me all the gear and the helmet and the pads and everything. And um, I really loved it. And uh, it really made me uh, appreciate um, the ability to like get knocked down and get back up again. Mm -hmm. And, um, it also made me pretty tough, like from a feedback standpoint. Um, and it was a really great pressure outlet, uh, for stress, um, because you get to hit people on roller skates and, <laughs> and it was honestly at the time, exactly what I needed. Um, I worked long hours in venture capital like you do. Uh, and I got to leave there. Uh, I would like change clothes in my car driving from office job to, uh, I was like, you know, doing the Superman in the phone booth kind yeah. of a thing to get into my derby gear to make it to practice on time. Mm -hmm. um, but I really loved it. And I was in really great shape. Um, and I had to stop playing because I had my daughter and um, I couldn't leave the community. So I went back and I coached for a few more years. Um, and, and I finally had to stop doing that, uh, due to lots of travel. But one of the things that I like love about Austin is it's basically the birthplace of flat track roller derby. And of course the location of the film whip it, which sort of brought, uh, roller derby back into the limelight a little yeah. bit. But I love, I love roller skating. I have three pairs of skates. Uh, <laughs> and nice. yeah, I love it. The community is amazing and I don't think I will ever fully be able to leave it. Uh, I think that's a beautiful thing. So are you going to train your, your child, your, your daughter, I think you said, to, I, to be, or be a roller skater? I honestly, she's well suited. Uh, she's, she's kind of a wild child uh, for a four-year-old <laughs> um, and she's really physical. Uh, so I think, yeah, I think you can't, nice. really, you can't really start them this young. Um, but she definitely has a pair of roller skates. So <laughs> that's fantastic. <laughs> uh, so I, I, yeah, I love that, and it's um, it's great to think about you applying your roller derby skills uh, in the 
hard charging world of health insurance. Um, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about decent a little bit because sure. the the very idea of a startup health plan, when all we see is consolidation and mergers of the giants, yeah. A, the idea of a startup health plan seems kind of crazy. Can yep. can you give us a little bit of the genesis behind? You know, who, who thought this was a good idea and why? So uh, Nick um, is the catalyst behind this. And um, he, he likes to tell this joke. Um, and it's, I've heard it like 25 times. So it's not funny to me anymore. But, the, um, <laughs> but, but his, his parents are both family physicians. And he grew up in the Pacific Northwest and uh, married a girl from the Pacific Northwest who I went to elementary school with, which is a weird coincidence that we figured out after the fact. Crazy. But he um, he was paying more in insurance premium than he was for rent in the Bay Area for his family of four. Wow. And he he, like most people, just suffered this incredible sticker shock trying to buy health insurance on his own. And he was working um, as an independent contractor and just couldn't believe it and sort of said, okay, I, I've started businesses before. Can I start a business to sort of help me tackle this problem? And he noodled it for a long time and made a go of it. And he called me and he was like, what about this? And what about that? And I was like, well, you could do this and you could do that. And, um, and, uh, he, he was really worried about the sort of lack of transparency, uh, massive inefficiencies and really how healthcare wasn't applying any new technology <laughs> to, uh, solving some of these problems. Um, in particular, he saw blockchain as a as a technology that could potentially um, alleviate several of these problems, including misaligned incentives. Um, a lot of people just do not trust their health insurance plan, and that's a really good um, application for blockchain. But but mostly the thing that he saw was the population of individuals who work for themselves is growing at a more rapid clip than people mm -hmm. who work for an employer. And since our healthcare system is based around employer-based coverage, he saw this as sort of a need today, but also a, a rapidly expanding need in the future. And how do we really tackle that? And it's so interesting because I know like, you hear a lot these days about sort of the rise in popularity of uh, health cost sharing plans and that kind of thing. And I, I would have thought that, you know, maybe his head will go there, but this is, this is a true health plan, right? Like this is actually yeah. insurance. So, um, unfortunately for Nick, he hired me and, um, <laughs> fortunately, unfortunately for him, he hired me. I'm not a huge fan of sort of the health sharing ministries. I think they give people a false sense of coverage, um, to just be perfectly blunt about it. Um, there is lots of good that they do. Um, and they do cover people who are in need and they do it at a very reduced rate, but that sort of comes with sacrifices in that they can cap their coverage. Some of the things that people have to pay for, they pay for out of pocket first. Um, and re I really don't, didn't like that. Um, just as a person who has like, you know, played roller derby and broken a few bones, mm -hmm. um, the idea of me having to pay out of pocket to have my nose reset or, 
um, pay for an MRI on my shoulder to see how badly I dislocated it. Like I couldn't have done that stuff as a single person who was trying to make it on my, you know, self-employment salary. So, so I was like, Hey, I would rather just try to do the hard thing. And he was really agreeable to that because he's an open guy and sort of listened to my subject matter expertise. And, and here we are. And in all honesty, you know, decent isn't a true health plan. We act as an administrator, a third party administrator with a network, which makes us look a lot like a health plan, but Mm -hmm. we partner with associations or groups who essentially take on the, the, the risk. Um, and we advise them about how much risk they can take on. And we work with actuaries to make sure their plan is priced appropriately. And so decent as a health plan is just sort of a shorthand term because what we are is a multiple employer welfare arrangement in the state of Texas or a MIWA in the state of Texas um, through the Texas Freelance Association. Um, we set up a benefits trust. And so members of the Texas Freelance Association um, as freelancers get education, they get access to job boards, um, they uh, attend conferences at a discounted rate, et cetera. Um, and then they also have access to health insurance. And the, so we offer through the Texas Freelance Association um, and it's a cool organization. It's been around since 2015 and the, the number two thing behind getting jobs uh, that they were worried about and have been worried about members of the association have been worried about for many, many years is um, health insurance. So when I go out on my Mm -hmm. own, how do I find jobs and how do I make sure that my family is covered? Absolutely. So let's, let's talk for a minute just about how decent is different. And you alluded to that by talking about the fact that it's not, you know, a third party administrator, et cetera, but, as you are sort of reconstructing how benefits should work mm-hmm. for this class of people, yep. tell me about what were the building blocks? How did you put that together to take sort of the best of the insurance experience, but really just leave out some of the stuff that does not work for people? Yeah. So having spent a long time uh, on the payer side, um, I, and on the provider side, frankly, um, I got to experience all of the good and bad that sort of comes with the health plan model. And one of the things that I ultimately think health plans, um, should do is just get out of the way of good care. Mm-hmm. And, um, if you, we have sort of the luxury of not carrying around any legacy systems, right? I don't have a 25-year-old claims processing system, and I don't have a network of thousands of right. providers that have been in the network for a really long time. Um, and I haven't sold a bunch of product with a bunch of different plans. And and so we sort of get to start with a clean slate. Um, and it, we've been able to sort of have the advantage of um, really taking what's best in class today um, which includes um, agility, so not hard coding a bunch of stuff in essentially to our code, our software, um, et cetera, and being able to be flexible sort of from the ground up, but also taking best in class things like direct primary care and surgery bundles and um, transparent pharmacy pricing and um, 
really allowing our primary care physicians to establish relationships with our members and provide them what a health plan would typically provide in the form of care management, disease management, utilization Mm -hmm. management. So direct primary care providers want to, I would say, provide that type of service, that type of in-depth, are you sticking to the diet plan that we talked about as and have as our care plan? Are you refilling your prescription drugs on time, uh, et cetera? And so um, they just do that as part of their practice. Um, and in all honesty, it's much, much more effective. And there have been tons of studies on this, um, but more effective when a physician says, hey, maybe you should do this uh, than yeah. when a health plan says that. And so I sort of view our um, role as to get the heck out of the way um, and just support uh, what we have come to know as sort of best in class uh, care delivery. And that completely makes sense. I'm going to, we're going to take a quick break right now, Molly, but we're going to be right back. And I want to dive in a little bit more to direct primary care and how decent works, like what, how, how that fits into the model. Um, so stick around. We're going to be right back with Molly Moore from Decent. And we're back on Data Point. Our guest today is Molly Moore from Decent. Uh, and we've just been talking about Decent's uh, arrival into the Austin marketplace, working with uh, freelancers to help provide health coverage. And before we went on the break, Molly, we were talking a little bit about direct primary care. And for our listeners who may be less familiar with the nuts and bolts, could you talk a little bit about sort of your process of onboarding direct primary care physicians? And you know, why was that so important for your model? What was it like? What were their objections? Uh, I, I guess I shouldn't make the assumption that they had any, but yeah, tell me about <laughs> what did. that process looked like. <laughs> yeah. So um, for those who aren't familiar with direct primary care, it's essentially um, primary care that is done on a monthly fee basis as opposed to a fee-for-service basis. So every time I go to the doctor today at the local university clinic, they charge me a 99213 every single time or a four, depending on how bad it is when I go in. Um, but they don't get paid essentially, you know, to do follow-up calls and all sorts of stuff. Um, with the direct primary care model, I would pay the, pay the physician a monthly fee and they would take care of me. They would answer text messages. They would be on call. They um, could potentially see me after hours if I needed. Um, but it's all covered with no copay. Um, and physicians who sort of have embraced this model um, have opted out, really. They, well, they mm-hmm. actually have to opt out of Medicare, but they have opted out of the regular fee-for-service model and just said, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't want to deal with health insurance anymore. I just want to mm-hmm. take care of my patient population and really have no barriers. And they do a phenomenal job of managing disease and improving patient satisfaction and doing all of the things that you would want a primary care physician to do sort of under a value-based agreement or a risk-based agreement, um, they they do that sort of inherently in their practice, and so um, it's what it's what I consider sort of best-in-class primary care. They offer telemedicine, they offer all of that stuff, and it's just one fee. Mm-hmm. So getting those providers who have basically said like no thank you uh, to insurance, we've tried this and we don't want to do this anymore. Um, 
to come back to us as a as a de facto sort of insurance carrier or working with a population where they have to deal with a payer who isn't their patient directly mm-hmm. uh, was a challenge. Um, but we hadn't extended a contract to DPCs before because we were brand new. And so I sort of drafted what I thought was a very brief agreement, which was 12 pages long. And um, I, I sent this out to four or five doctors um, in the Austin area and sort of said, tell me what you think of this. And one doctor just sent it back and said, I'm not reading it. It's 12 pages long. And <laughs> I was like, oh, right, 12 pages. Like to me, I was used to like 45-page physician yeah, agreements, exactly. like a bunch of legalese. And I was like, yeah, 12 pages is so short. And they're like, yeah, no. <laughs> um, so I was like, okay, how do we get around this? And so um, – we took uh, three physicians out to dinner um, and sort of had a discussion. What would you like to see from Decent as a partner? How do you want us to send you patients? What is the easiest way for you to work with us? And one of the things that the direct primary care physician said was super important was maintaining the relationship with their patients. So not having us anywhere in the vicinity of in the middle of that. And so um, we drafted a two-page agreement and what it said was, um, you direct primary care have relationship with your patient. In fact, they even have a contract with their patient um, that is signed completely separately and decent will just pay the bill. So, so that's our entire agreement with our DPCs is two pages and it just says, be successful and do what you were doing already um, with, with your patient population. Um, and we're just going to pay for it. Um, and you do you, uh, because what you do is so good. And, um, that worked. Um, and now when I talk to direct primary care physicians about how we did that, um, Mm they're they're like, well, why did you do it that way? I said, well, we got the input of DPCs. And they were like, wait a second, a health plan. Listen to the input of physicians. <laughs> and I said, yes. Um, it's because madness, I tell you. It's, I know, because it's really important to us that our primary care um, really handles uh, as much as possible of the patient care. We really, truly believe that that relationship is important. Um, and it turns out patients really like that. And, um, most people, when we told them we did, we surveyed like 2000 freelance workers and most people thought we were kidding, um, or that it wasn't a real thing when we told them what direct primary care was or described that experience. Mm -hmm. And, um, we got a lot of like, this is like the fifties, it's kind of back to the future, (laughs) like Dr. Welby kind of stuff. And it was Uh like, well, yeah, I guess kinda, I mean, but um, yeah, we're really excited to be able to sort of put um, direct primary care um, at the forefront of our health plan and really build the network around them because we love what they do. I'm thinking about what's in it for the for the DPC physician. Like you're going to bring them, you know, potentially patients, um, yeah. you know, because people who join, you know, select a decent plan are going to work with one of these DPC docs. What's what else is in the what's in it for me for those doctors? Uh, in all honesty, the way that the DPC financial model works is it's they charge a rate and they have to have so many patients in order to make their business model work. Mm-hmm. And so 
if they can sort of hit those numbers, which we're happy to give them patients in order for them to hit those numbers, we pay them their rack rate. So we're basically an extension of a marketing arm um, mm-hmm. for them. And I don't know if you know physicians, but they are not excellent marketers, most of them. And that is right. most of their uh, way out of their comfort zone. Um, and so uh, they're sort of happy to receive patients without having to go out and and talk with brokers or employers mm. or sort of um, sell themselves and their services um, to, to cash pay. Um, but that, that sort of just helps them make their model more viable, um, but it also helps them scale the model uh, as well. And so um, we're, we're very, very happy to help rapidly scale direct primary care into the, into the masses, if you will. So what happens when Decent is phenomenally successful uh, in the Austin marketplace and all of a sudden the DPC practices are full? Yeah. Right? The, those guys have limitations on how many patients they can provide service to. What, what happens? So there are a couple things that we're working on because, of course, our investors sort of asked us that same question. Because historically and, and, and moving forward, um, your typical primary care physician who does fee-for-service has um, between 1,200 and 2,500 members that they sort of, or patients they sort of manage. Mm-hmm. Um, and a direct primary care physician has, I want to say, be somewhere between like 400 and 700 is probably their max. Yep. And so that's a big difference in how many patients they're willing to take on. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we're doing um, in particular for 2020, um, and I don't know if you realize this was such an excellent setup, um, but they, <laughs> they um, we are using virtual direct primary care um, as, a, as an alternative uh, to in-person direct primary care. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the reasons we're doing that is because when we started to survey the, the what are affectionately known as the quote-unquote young invincibles market, um, they were like, I don't see my primary care physician ever. I just go yeah. to the urgent care and I'm not going to get any value from this, you know, primary care centric plan. And so we said, well, okay, we want to have that direct primary care um, sort of quarterback uh, for all of our members because just is a better experience for everybody all around that way. Um, but what happens if they are out of state or um, one of the things that is uh, not, I wouldn't say a little unique, but it's definitely in Texas is oil workers. They go out and then they come back and their families typically live in one area. Does it make more sense for that person who is on a rig or working in oil? Like, does it make sense for them to have a virtual direct primary care so they can access them all the time? Um, and so we are offering up virtual direct primary care in, in 2020. So there's a version of each of our health plans that has an in-person DPC and then a virtual version uh, of our direct primary care network. And they do everything essentially that a direct primary care would do. They prescribe, they order labs and imaging, et cetera. So that is fascinating. And that actually, yeah. it leads me backwards. I'm sort of tunneling into decent here. But you referenced earlier a connection with blockchain. Yeah. And I'm curious about sort of the technology platform. Uh, virtual care, you know, implies uh, lots of things about what, what platform is underlying all this. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that and what's uh, different about decent's approach to it? 
Yeah. So um, we did not, we declined to build our own sort of telemedicine or virtual platform. Um, we are partnering with a company called MedLion and um, they're great and very seasoned, um, also early stage startup, but uh, has physician coverage across the United States. And um, so that virtual platform is sort of already set up and um, which is good because we would not necessarily be experts at a virtual care platform. Mm. Um, but we, we have built our own backend for billing and patient experience and um, our very lovely dev team um, has been very patient with me in particular as I try to understand and sort of navigate through um, having technology that supports sort of our unique benefit structure and claims processing and tracking plan accumulators and all sorts of really interesting stuff that goes along with operating um, administrator slash health plan. And um, so we, we, yeah, we have all of this sort of amazing backend that we've built in under a year. Um, And in addition to being the health plan lead, I'm also the compliance officer, which is, uh, difficult. Um, I have so much more respect for every compliance officer I've ever known. Uh, Mm -hmm. You all are angels and amazing. Um, But the the blockchain component, um, to be perfectly honest, we haven't built yet. Um, We have to have enough people on the plan to test it. Mm. Um, And uh, but we're working on putting protocols together um, for incentive alignment and just incentives in general um, and figuring out how we can sort of um, kickstart a healthcare economy uh, on the blockchain. It'll be on Ethereum and uh, logic or Ethereum-like logic. I've had a chance to work on it with our blockchain developers mm-hmm. um, and our CTO who is a ridiculously smart PhD from MIT um, who races motorcycles on the weekend. Um, so sort of my, my uh, <laughs> friend in crash course sports. Um, but uh, he and our blockchain developer are working on, you know, where do we sort of start with blockchain? What's unique? What's novel? Um, what will help the company the most? Um, and then what will help just the general overall healthcare economy the most. Um, and the work that I've gotten to do with them, I'm, it's totally fascinating um, work just to learn about the possibilities uh, that are out there. And, it, you know, for all my healthcare nerds out there um, who don't, who are like, yeah, blockchain, that's just Bitcoin. Um, it, the, the best analogy that I could give if you're not interested at all in learning about blockchain is that Bitcoin is to blockchain as email is to the internet. Mm-hmm. That's, a good, that's a good one. It's a good one. And it, it's just like there are a, a huge mass of applications um, for blockchain. Uh, State Farm is investigating blockchain. Optum, of course, is working on blockchain technology. So we have huge, huge, um, organizations that are saying like, oh, there's, there's a, there, there, um, with blockchain technology and insurance and sort of validation. Um, and I'm excited to be sort of on, on the leading edge of, of looking at that and evaluating, um, potential. So I'm imagining that the patients, your, your members Mm -hmm. are 
you know, when they're interacting with a technology platform, it's probably their, their doctor's technology platform. Is it your vision to be able to play a more active role in terms of, uh, you know, bringing information and insight to the patient and the provider? Or is it more, or is it your intention to really kind of stay in the back end? Um, I'm just curious about the yeah. vision. Um, our CTO could probably speak more to this. So I'll just caveat this with, I only know what they tell me. Um, <laughs> because I'm kind of on the, a different side of the organization. But right. in all honesty, the early stuff is the back end stuff that the patient essentially doesn't see, right? Um, because people sort of interacting with blockchain, it just gets a little bit harder. Um, but it will get easier um, as uh, computational time speeds up and transaction time speeds up um, mm. eventually to the point where um, th there are some unknowns in blockchain still um, with identity and things like that, which are really key to um, PHI being released, et cetera. Um, and, and so I think um, in all honesty, there are some things that you don't need blockchain to fix. And one of them sure. is, connecting a health plan to an electronic medical record, mm. um, <laughs> which it could happen today. I know people don't like to hear that. Um, it's just not because the, they don't want to play nice in the same sandbox, um, right. the health plans and the, the providers, but, um, oh, and the electronic medical records, uh, shout out to Epic for just holding, <laughs> holding the information hostage. Exactly. Um, that walled garden that we love it, so much. It is. Thanks, Judy. Um, so the uh, amazing um, blockchain technology that it is, um, it, it certainly doesn't need to be there to connect, um, but it right. would certainly speed up not only making that direct connection between claims and electronic medical records or electronic medical records and claims, um, but also informing care teams and other providers and families um, and certainly doing sort of permissioned um, access for certain sort of information um, would be highly valuable. Um, and our, our CTO, the, his PhD thesis was on essentially motion sensor information um, and, and distributed systems. And so sort of bringing those, um, you know, the, uh, the Apple watch information, uh, mm -hmm. into play and, and that kind of stuff, I think, um, is very, um, near and dear to his heart. Um, so I think, I think we definitely will do that, but all of this, I mean, at a minimum is a couple years out, um, yep. uh, to it being sort of mainstream and, and useful. So let's, I want to, I want to close with a question that's really looking to the future of the business. And I know, you know, being less than a year old in your first market, there's been lots of uh, good learnings that have come out of that. I'm sure. <laughs> so um, but when we were off mic, you were talking, you said something that I thought was really profound and it was about the fact that healthcare is such a local thing right? The, yeah. the market between providers and uh, freelancers slash patients is going to look a little different in different places. Given that backdrop, can you tell me, you know, how decent is thinking about the future? What does growth look like for you? I, uh, 
I think if you asked our CEO, he'd be like thousands tomorrow um, because that's a CEO's job. <laughs> exactly. um, but uh, the thing we were talking about off mic was that um, healthcare is hyper-local. So it, it, in the Austin market, for example, um, strange as it seems, there's essentially a monopoly <laughs> with gastroenterology. Um, and so it's been very difficult for us um, to develop that part of the network. And I assume that if we expand to other sort of large metropolitan areas like Dallas, like Houston, San Antonio, et cetera, in Texas, we will also encounter that stuff. Um, And we've been getting some insights in particular about Dallas and in particular about Houston. And so um, one of the things that I hope we can do sort of as we expand, um, certainly throughout Texas um, and definitely to other states, we've been talking to um, a couple of different um, large associations in two other states in particular. Um, you know, if there's pull through um, and they can sort of help guide us into the market, which is something that we haven't had in Austin, we sort of had to bang our, bang our way around here. Sure. Um, if we can, if we can have someone sort of pull us through into the market and help be our guide, I think we'll have a much smoother time um, entering each each market we go into. Um, but given how we develop um, our our network um, and uh, certainly how um, we are developing our sort of back end and who we're appealing to, we're really trying to set ourselves up for the future to be able to do both solid metropolitan areas, um, but also rural. And we talked about the virtual direct primary care. Um, and that certainly um, is beneficial when you head out into sort of rural Texas, if you think about that. Absolutely. Uh, and so we will we will look for places where we can have sort of a guiding hand pull through um, in the future as we look to expand in the U.S. Um, and there's definitely opportunity overseas. Um, in particular, uh, uh, countries who are very um, sort of crypto forward or blockchain forward or who have a mixture of public and private health insurance. Yep. And which is really most of the developed world, I, I would imagine. Yes. It feels like there could be a lot of interesting opportunities. Yeah. Well, I I can't tell you how much I appreciate you being here, Molly. I think well, what you're- Thanks for asking me what, to come on. Absolutely. I, I loved, think what you guys are I love talking healthcare. Absolutely. It's well, that's that's why I do this show. So, <laughs> uh, definitely, I want people to be able to find out about Decent. And so, in our show notes, we'll have links to decent.com, which, by the way, great domain. I can't believe you got decent.com. Uh, yes, Nick uh, took out a mortgage on his house to buy that before <laughs> he started the company. It takes it takes a village. Yeah, exactly. So where else can people go? Where else should people go if people are really interested in finding out more about Decent and the work you're doing? Yeah, so www.decent.com. We have lots of links out from there. Um, Nick Selman is our CEO. He's very active on Twitter, um, also on LinkedIn. And you can always just email me, molly at decent.com. I'm happy to talk healthcare or tell you about what we're doing or introduce you to people inside the company. I'm, I'm pretty excited and bullish on what's happening next. So 
Fantastic. Thanks so much, Molly. And for our listeners, we will see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to the Data Point podcast. If you like what you've heard, please do rate, review, and share it with your social network. It means a lot. And if you have ideas for show topics or guests, please email them to me at greg at healthquant.health or send a direct message to at Chai Moose on Twitter. That's C-H-I-M-O-O-S-E on Twitter. For more information about this show or any of the terrific healthcare podcasts in the Touchpoint Media Network, check them out at touchpoint.health. See you next time.